Welcome to the 40th episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, was published last month and is receiving industry-wide praise. It can be ordered through his website, robertpearlmd.com. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin this show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, this past week has been a good one for the United States, although not so much for other parts of the world. As more and more geographies in the U.S. near the 70% vaccination rate, at least for first shots, we're seeing the number of new cases, hospitalizations, and deaths fall to levels we haven't seen since the earliest days of the pandemic. As an example, the seven-day average for number of deaths hasn't been this low since March of 2020. That was the earliest days of COVID-19. Similarly, the new number of cases each day is fewer than 20,000. But of course, there's a caveat that most people who are asymptomatic or have very mild symptoms likely to be tested. The percentage of positive tests, however, is down to less than 2%. That compares to 13% during the height of the pandemic. And that implies that the reported low rate of infection is real, since the positivity rate would be 2% of people who come to be tested. And that subset would be a group that would be expected to have a much higher frequency of positivity than the population in general. Finally, the third leg of the trifecta, hospitalizations, they've declined from 40,000 last month to 23,000 this month, and far less than the 142,000 we saw in mid-January of 2021. Overall, the rate of vaccination continues to rise with over 300 million Doses having been given, over half of Americans being fully vaccinated, 75% of seniors being fully vaccinated, and two-thirds of adults have now received at least one shot. And a fourth U.S. vaccine, one from a company called Novavax, has just completed phase three testing with excellent results, results that are similar to the currently available vaccines, regulatory approval for this new one, it has been submitted and is expected to be obtained in the near future. You know, Jeremy, vaccines are now authorized for teenagers with over 6 million individuals, 12 to 17, having received at least one dose and 3 million having been given both. Phase three testing of younger children, age five to 11, is likely to be completed by September 
with kids six months to five years being considered for approval by the end of the fall. And of course, the amount of vaccine being given to these small children will be much less than for adults. Having said all of that positive information, there are some threatening clouds on the horizon. Some states like Mississippi are lagging in vaccination rates with only a quarter of the population being fully vaccinated. One third of Americans remain hesitant to be vaccinated. Whether the success of the current vaccines will spur added interest or the diminishing risk of becoming infected will reinforce hesitancy, that remains to be seen. The United Kingdom that had planned for a full reopening next week has now delayed it for a month due to the so-called Delta variant. This is the one that's ravaging India and it's become the dominant strain in the United Kingdom. This mutant has a far greater ability to be transmitted and it's more resistant to the current vaccines than past variants. Overall protection is estimated to be only 30% after the first dose, the one that they're using in the United Kingdom, the AstraZeneca vaccine. But fortunately, protection is calculated to be 80% after the second dose. So hopefully the pause should have a major salutary impact. That assumes, of course, that the virus doesn't mutate further. The currently available vaccines in the US are more effective at preventing infection from this variant, as well as the other variants than the, than the vaccine that's being used in the United Kingdom. While the daily numbers on infections, hospitalizations and deaths is far better than in the past, the total death toll has now passed 600,000 Americans. That's more than 10 times the annual number of deaths from the flu the annual number of deaths from motor vehicle accidents, or even the usual number of deaths from drug overdoses. And as we've said on this show, we've seen the opioid problem worsen in 2020, leading to 90,000 deaths, 50% more than a typical 12 month period. A lot of great news, but as we said, some storm clouds, some fears for the future. Robbie, on the last show, you talked about the current vaccines being only approved for emergency authorization. Can you clarify what that means? I, I've heard concerns from people that they think this means that the FDA has not fully tested or is not fully confident in its safety. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And when is the FDA likely to give fuller approval? Jeremy, full authorization from the FDA requires six months of data. And that's the only reason that the current vaccines have only been given emergency use FDA approval because that approval requires two months of data and we're just now entering the six month time period. When the Pfizer vaccine hit the six month mark, the company did submit its request for full authorization for people 16 and older. And last week, 
Moderna did the same when its vaccine passed the six-month mark. And you may remember that the vaccine only began in December, so there would be no way to have this fuller authorization prior to the current time period. But getting full authorization, as you're implying, is very important. It will generate added confidence in the vaccine amongst some of the people who remain hesitant. It will allow the companies to market the vaccine directly to consumers, which might also lead to more people becoming vaccinated. And it will allow the companies to continue to distribute the vaccine even when the pandemic is over, which will prevent further infections. And it's likely to cause many businesses to make vaccination mandatory, given that the safety has been fully confirmed. And that too will help not just those individuals who have been vaccinated, but those individuals who remain hesitant. To that end, you may remember on the show a few weeks ago, we talked about a large Texas hospital that was mandating vaccination for all employees and that there were 200 who were refusing and had sued the hospital for wrongful termination. This week, the court ruled in favor of the hospital, pointing to the safety of the vaccine. And with full FDA approval, it's hard to imagine that all courts won't agree with the hospitals and other health systems that are encouraging vaccination as a means of protecting the patients who entrust their lives to the facilities. Having said that, the final authorization step is, as you would expect, very rigorous. And it takes a few months to review all the data and have research scientists look for even the slightest irregularity that could pose a danger to patients. And they're required to continue to submit their data during the review process. In the emergency use authorization process, the benefits are compared to the risks. And what we've seen so far is that the benefits of vaccination are dramatically greater than any risks posed by the vaccine. In the final authorization process, the goalposts are moved further back and final approval, which is expected for the currently used vaccines, is the true gold standard for safety. Once that arrives, no one should be hesitant to go ahead and receive the vaccine, the life-saving immunity that it creates. Robbie, a listener wanted to know why the U.S. has done so little to address the COVID-19 problems in other nations. What are your thoughts? Jeremy, we've been talking about this issue for the past few shows. Now the federal government is moving forward to help. President Biden committed to sending 500 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine to other nations this year and over 1 million doses by the end of 2022. The vaccine will be distributed through COVAX, the global initiative we talked about in the past that is designed to help 92 of the world's poorer nations protect their citizens. Previously, the president had announced the US commitment to send 80 million doses to a combination of COVAX nations 
and countries like India and Brazil that are being hit extremely hard by these new variants. Unfortunately, the nation that produces the most vaccine in the world for COVAX is India. They have the manufacturing capability, but they've been slowed by the massive outbreak of disease in the country and exports from India have now stopped in the country's efforts to vaccinate its own population and reduce the tragically high death toll that the country has experienced over the past month. The global shortage and economic limitations for developing nations were discussed in detail when the leaders of the G7 met last week. As to why the US hasn't done more, the reasons reflect a difficult balancing act in an uncertain time. On one hand, the president understands the loss of life and economic devastation that COVID-19 poses for poor underdeveloped countries. And he recognizes the risks to the US if high rates of viral replication in other countries accelerate the development of new mutant strains, ones that could be more resistant to the vaccines that we use in the United States. At the same time, he knows the intense criticism and attacks he will receive if there's a major spike in infections in the US due to a mutant strain and there aren't sufficient doses available to give everyone a third shot, should that be CDC recommended. And when you're talking about 300 million more doses to be injected, that's a large amount of the world's total vaccine availability at the current time. You know, Jeremy, you're an historian and you know, being president is a damned if you do and damned if you don't job. As you may remember, Mr. Biden pushed to allow other countries to ignore patent restrictions and begin vaccine production. He was immediately attacked by the pharmaceutical industry, by some European leaders with major drug manufacturing companies inside their borders. I'd say that similar to many other humanitarian actions, people are very supportive as long as they personally aren't affected. Hopefully the irrelevance of national borders when it comes to this virus and the growing global threat from the Delta variant will mitigate and ease people's resistance. Robbie, another listener wanted to know how the world is doing relative to vaccinations. The pandemic seems to be winding down in the United States. What can you tell listeners about how the rest of the world is doing? Jeremy, overall, the world is improving. But as we just noted, the distribution of the vaccine varies by the country. It's the highest in Great Britain with over two thirds of its population having received at least one dose. And it goes way down in Africa where the number of people or the percentage of people who have been vaccinated is in the low single digits. Overall so far, 2 billion doses have been given, but 300 million of those have been in the United States, another couple of million in Great Britain. In total, high-income countries, 16% of the world's population have administered 38% of the total vaccine doses, 
while low-income countries with 9% of the world's population remain at 1% or less of their people being vaccinated. But even among higher-income nations, vaccination rates vary depending on previous negotiations to secure delivery. In contrast to the British, with over 60% of people vaccinated with at least one dose, there's South Korea at 13% and Japan at 9%. The problem for poor nations, however, is beyond just the economics, beyond just the cost of buying the vaccine. These are some of the most complex medications to transport, store, and administer. They require super cold temperatures and exact dose calculations. And once reconstituted, they must be given in a very short amount of time. These poorer nations struggle with fewer roads, electrical grid challenges, and an insufficient number of healthcare workers. At the same time, China has revved up its capability and is now giving 20 million shots per day or more every 24 hours than all but 14 countries around the globe have administered in total. Robbie, you successfully led an organization of over 10,000 doctors on both coasts for almost 20 years. You also teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business in addition to the Stanford School of Medicine. This means that you clearly know what you're talking about when it comes to business and economic matters. It also puts you in the very rare position of having expertise in both business and medicine. You, along with a few other experts, have talked about the real next wave of the pandemic being the job loss, economic devastation, alcoholism, depression, many children falling behind in school. Uh, many people have stayed home and did not eat as well or get as much exercise as normal. We've also seen a massive increase in crime, violence, and division in the country since the start of the pandemic. Uh, we're still seeing shortages of certain goods. Uh, the costs of many goods have skyrocketed, such as lumber, gas, and silicon for microchips. The housing market is crazy, too. You know, I have a friend who just put an offer on a house 20% above asking price the day it went on the market and still wasn't able to get it. Um, employers are struggling to hire for entry-level jobs, too, and we're looking at extremely high levels of inflation that haven't been seen since the 1970s. Robbie, as we start to look to the future beyond the virus, what are your thoughts on how to tackle the numerous issues with mental health, physical health, public health, economic problems, and social division that has come about as a result of the pandemic and the handling of it? Jeremy, you are raising such important, vital issues for our nation. And what you're describing is a confluence of forces, both ones in the economic engines of the United States and in the healthcare system that are going to come together and must be addressed for our nation to be successful. As you imply, the federal government will face challenges having borrowed $8 trillion that it must repay with interest. The states mandated by law to have balanced budgets will find themselves with higher unemployment costs and increased Medicaid expenses and small businesses. These are the engines of employment in the United States. They've struggled over the past 18 months and they're gonna to need to get back 
onto their feet. And the United States is going to have to address the healthcare issues that plagued us before, but only grew worse during the pandemic and the impact that the social distancing and the care delivery failures during the pandemic will lead to growing problems for people into the future. I wrote in the book on caring of the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients that we will most likely face tremendous downward pressure on healthcare costs. We'll be able to address it by rationing, but that's the wrong solution because it will harm the people of the United States. And I'm optimistic that the solutions will come through transformation, that we'll be able to move from a system of healthcare that pays based upon volume of care delivery rather than value created. I'm optimistic that we'll be able to move from an approach of the past that rewarded doctors and hospitals based upon doing more to rewarding them for prevention, avoidance of complications from chronic disease, that rewarded patient safety and avoiding medical errors, that we're going to be able to move from a fee-for-service reimbursement to one that a set amount of dollars is given to a group of doctors and a hospital to provide care to a population and judged on the quality of outcomes produced and the satisfaction of the people getting the care, that we're gonna embrace modern technology. This is the approach that I believe that will be needed because if not, the other alternatives will be greater economic challenges, worse medical outcomes, and as you pointed out in previous podcasts, growing divisiveness in the nation. This is what in the business school we call a strategic inflection point, a moment in time when decisions must be made about which direction we're going to go. I'm not naive. The resistance will be great. Great inside the industry from the legacy players. I think large from many doctors who will be fearful of moving forward and will experience a sense of loss for what they had before. But I'm optimistic that if we can do it, Jeremy, we have the ability to lower healthcare expenditures, to improve patients' health, and to move American medicine out of the 20th century into the 21st. Ravi, earlier you mentioned the Delta variant, uh, the strain that's currently in India. 
I'm hearing more and more concerns about if this variant is extra deadly or vaccine resistant against the current vaccines. What do we know about the Delta variant? Should vaccinated people be concerned about it? Um, can you give listeners more details on it and how it might impact global travel? Jeremy, the Delta variant is now the most prevalent strain in the United Kingdom. You may remember that the so-called alpha variant, and for listeners, we've moved from referring to the various mutant strains based upon the nation for which it was first identified into Greek letters to avoid any type of disparaging thoughts about the country in which it was first found. So the alpha strain, the one that began in England and had been the most dominant one in the United Kingdom has now been replaced by this Delta strain, the one that came out of India with 91% of the cases in the United Kingdom being this new variant. We can be sure that it will delay travel to England for at least the next month. And if cases spike, it's definitely going to be longer. Current estimates are that this new variant is around 40% more transmissible than the alpha or original mutant that dominated Great Britain just a few months ago. And that one was 40% more transmissible than the original coronavirus. This rapidly evolving incidence of different strains highlights two aspects of the virus for listeners who may not have a scientific background. First, it shows how fast a new viral mutant can gain a foothold when it has a biological advantage of what currently exists. And second, it shows how exponentially faster growth happens and that it can replace the previously dominant strain in an incredibly short amount of time. And this shows the danger that all nations face the longer the pandemic rages anywhere in the world. We've already seen this new variant, this Delta variant, go from one to 2% of cases in the United States to 6% a week or two ago, and now 10%. Listeners shouldn't think that this means that hospitalizations and deaths in the US are about to soar or will mirror the devastation in India. The high vaccination rate that we've achieved will serve as a major buffer. And as we said, the vaccines in the United States are effective against these variants, even if not quite at the same level as they were against the original coronavirus. And it's optimistic that the Memorial Day weekend hasn't driven up the number of cases in the US, despite what was a high travel time period and three days of family gathering. And so far, nearly all patients hospitalized in Great Britain were either unvaccinated or had received just one dose of the vaccine. In fact, in total, there've only been three people who received both doses and died from COVID 
since the Delta variant became dominant in the United Kingdom. With the pandemic slowly winding down, uh, one of the common debates is whether social distancing made a difference. Uh, what's the newest research say? Jeremy, I predict this question will be debated for decades into the future. But we are slowly gaining insights, although we're far from having definitive answers. Some of the issues, of course, relate to our inability to accurately and quantitatively measure people's behaviors. The newest data comes from a survey done by Axios. Researchers asked people about mask wearing and then compared their answers to whether they had had a documented case of COVID-19. Among those who said they always wore a mask, 11% had tested positive. For those who said that sometimes, but not always, they wore a mask, 13% had been tested and been found to be positive. In the occasional, but not often, the positivity rate rose to 18%. And in the group that never wore a mask, 23% of people had had a positive test. This would imply that at least masks were helpful at avoiding infection and symptomatic disease. And since people who always wore masks were tested more often than those who never wore them, the true gap was probably greater. And similarly, only 10% of people who said that they always kept a, a six foot distance tested positive for COVID-19, while twice the percentage, 20% of those who said that they occasionally did, but not always tested positive. As in any research study, there are always limitations, but of course we can't tell about the accuracy of people's responses. And we don't know whether the reductions were simply correlations rather than causation. Maybe people who always wore a mask just never left their home, while the ones who didn't were continually parting with friends. Or maybe the people who occasionally took off their masks did so at the beach where the risk of breathing large loads of virus were much lower than inside buildings. And maybe the six foot social distances rarely went into stores while those who came closer to other people actually had higher rates simply because they were out in the public more often. To me, this data supports a middle position rather than either extreme. It is hard to argue based on these numbers, based on these numbers that social distancing doesn't help, that wearing masks doesn't decrease infections, and that avoidance of closed spaces and maybe even testing with quarantine aren't all factors that helped diminish transmission. And yet at the same time, it's clear that none of these is 100% effective. And we can't even be sure exactly which one was most valuable. I think the prudent action in the face of an infectious disease is to avoid coming in direct contact with others, to protect one's nose and mouth using a mask, but the true gold standard, the true 
solution to an infectious disease, one caused by a virus, always is vaccines. Robbie, our good news segment is valued by listeners looking for something positive in this pandemic. What's good this week? Jeremy, as we said in the last Coronavirus The Truth podcast, the really good news is the remarkable success of the vaccines, the ones that are currently available, and the rapidly falling rates of hospitalization and death. I hear from doctors across the country that for the first time in over a year, they've closed COVID-19 units and there are no active cases in the hospitals where they work. Few would have predicted this success even as late as last fall. But for this segment, there's several enjoyable stories that can help people smile as we come out of the current pandemic. The first is from Virginia where the Chesterfield Chamber of Commerce held an event and they allowed all attendees to choose what is becoming the newest pandemic accessory. This item is a brightly colored wristband that tells others whether it's okay to come close, shake hands and hug or to keep their physical distance. Red means no contact with no exceptions. Yellow means elbow only. And green says, hugs welcomed. Social commentary in these wristbands include those who point out the awkwardness that occurs when greens encounter reds, the uncertainty people feel in interacting with people wearing yellow, and the inconsiderate individuals who ignore the preferences of others. There are even people who, who are suggesting that this approach could be applied to other more intimate physical encounters on college campuses where explicit consent is required and no means no. A similar approach to social distancing was used by an organization in Georgia that labeled the green bands as, quotes, celebrating like it's 2019. The yellow as 2020 has me confused and the red as Wake Me in 2022. Organizers report that the green bands were the overwhelming choice of participants. And as the wedding season arrives and gatherings are being permitted, wedding planners say that these colored wristbands are becoming a common item and a means to eliminate the awkwardness that occurs when people haven't seen each other in over a year come together, particularly when they're individuals from different generations. In a parallel story, Americans are returning to the activities they enjoyed before the coronavirus came ashore. In a recent poll, only 30% of people labeled returning to their pre-coronavirus activities as a large to moderate risk. And that compares to 61%, double the number of people who said so in March. Similarly, over the past two months, the percent of people going out to dinner in the previous seven days rose from 39% to 61%. And 66% of people visited friends or relatives over the previous week, up from 44% in March. Our third story is about the expanding number of incentives being offered to people getting vaccinated. In this case, it's the Liquor and Cannabis Board of the state of Washington. This board approved a temporary allowance for cannabis retailers 
to offer, quotes, joints for jabs. They could give one joint to anyone over the age of 21 who came to an in-store vaccination clinic. The state had previously legalized cannabis sale. Now to date, few people have been able to avail themselves of the offer. One reason is that most cannabis businesses don't have the space to host the vaccination clinics. And many healthcare providers who would have to give the shots are fearful that they could run into federal legal issues over distribution of what at the federal level is considered an illegal drug, despite the state having permitted cannabis sale. In response to these difficulties, some cannabis sites are irate and they're complaining that breweries, wineries and bars can offer a free drink to customers based on proof of vaccination without an on-site clinic being required. And they are demanding the same opportunity. Ravi, a listener wrote to ask if we could expand this program to other new information from healthcare. She said that she loved our style of telling it as it is and hoped that we could continue to update listeners on other aspects of healthcare news. Is there something you can offer this week? Jeremy, I'm thrilled our listeners have found the information we provide so helpful. I'll do my best in each episode to fulfill the request. This week, let's talk about the FDA approval of a new drug designed to slow the progression of Alzheimer's disease. Before we discuss how what should have been a scientific process became a political one, reminiscent of some of the issues that occurred during COVID-19, I want to be clear, this is a terrible disease and it produces massive suffering for both patients and their families. You know, if I had one healthcare wish, there's almost nothing I would ask for more than a cure for this horrific disease. But in this case, most scientists don't believe that what the FDA did was based on the best research evidence available. And several of them have called it the worst decision the agency has made in the past. And that's saying a lot. So let me explain. The drug is Autohelm, and it was approved a week ago by the FDA in what they call accelerated approval. It's an even faster way to allow a new drug to be administered than the emergency authorization pathway that we've talked about relative to the vaccines. This accelerated approval permits manufacturers to simply show what is called surrogate approval. What that means is that rather than having to demonstrate and prove that a drug cures a disease, or in this case, avoids mental deterioration, all the manufacturer has to do is to show that in a related measure, there is a improvement demonstrated, even if that improvement has not yet been concluded to lead to the best clinical outcome for patients afflicted with that medical condition. For Alzheimer's disease, 
researchers have found that what is known as amyloid plaques in the brain are correlated with loss of memory in some patients. What they don't know, of course, is whether the amyloid plaques are what caused the deterioration or they're simply an associated outcome. Most often the accelerated approval process is used for cancer drugs. And there what companies do is they use reduced tumor size on the assumption that that will lead to prolongation of life. Although in many cases, that's not demonstrated to have been the case. In any case, the association of tumor regression and life prolongation does have far more evidence than in this case, diminution of amyloid plaque, plaques have with diminishing or slowing the decline in cognitive function. For this particular drug, clinical trials began in 2015. And they were completely discontinued in 2017 when they failed to show evidence of slowing of mental deterioration. For most drugs, this is almost always the end of the road. But then the company, Biogen, that manufactures the medication, said that they had reanalyzed some of the data and they had found some patients in one trial who seemed to have better outcomes, although they said there's mixed results compared to the placebo group, and they would be pushing ahead for approval. Soon after, the FDA was flooded with letters from organizations, once funded by the drug manufacturer, that wrote to encourage approval on behalf of their members. Prior to a final decision, the FDA asks for recommendations from one of its scientific advisory committees. And in this case, it was the one on neurological therapies. You may remember this type of advisory group recommendation prior to FDA approval happened when it came to vaccines last year. And there was overwhelming support that led to rapid approval by this federal regulatory group. In this case, however, the opposite occurred. Vote was 10 nays, zero yeses, and one, indi one individual, one scientist in the advisory group wasn't certain. Not only did the group feel that the drug wasn't clinically effective, but it also worried about the complications and the side effects, including brain swelling that can follow drug administration. It's hard to think of a more damning report when zero of 11 scientists, zero of the 11 experts chosen to participate on this advisory group, all are against approval, although one remained uncertain. You know, Jeremy, almost always the FDA follows its own advisory committee's recommendations. I can't think of a case where they went against it and it would be almost unimaginable to think of doing so given the vote that occurred. But in this case, 
the FDA approved the drug. And even more shockingly, rather than approving it for a small number of patients who would be the ones most likely to have a positive response, and then evaluating what happens in that group before expanding their approval, it gave carte blanche to all. And this leads to a second issue. The vast majority of patients with Alzheimer's disease are over the age of 65, and therefore they're insured by the federal government through Medicare. Medicare usually relies on the FDA to determine whether they will pay for the medications. And for a new drug that could potentially be given to 6 million Americans, ones for whom there is no other option, but a drug that scientists say doesn't seem likely to work, this could be both expensive and foolish. And that leads to a third set of issues. Drug manufacturers price new medications based on what the market will bear, not any type of economic or clinical analysis. They are recognized models using the cost of research, the cost of development that could be applied. But they, of course, would require drug companies to tell people how much they really invested, which often is less than they would like to believe about their R&D efforts. Some nations in the world do drug pricing based on the estimated clinical benefit. But of course, for this medication, that would be problematic since the studies have failed to demonstrate this major value. So rather than using an objective methodology, the company unilaterally came up with a number of $56,000 a year or more than $100 billion annually for people who could receive this drug. Estimates are that this one drug would represent as much of an expense for the federal government as all of the other drugs that Medicare currently covers combined. When queried, in, independent experts have said they would price the medication somewhere between $8,000 and $20,000 a year if they gave approval, which of course is far less than the company plans. And this leads to the next problem. The US is the only country in the world in which the government is prohibited by congressional action from negotiating prices with drug companies despite having to pay the bill. And that leads to a final set of issues. The drug is administered intravenously in the doctor's office. It's administered on an outpatient basis, which means that doctors get paid 6% of the drug cost to give the medication or $3,000 a year for what is a relatively simple process and accomplished on a monthly basis. And because many patients are responsible for a share of the office costs for medications administered by doctors, patients and their families could find themselves having to pay thousands of dollars. When you put all the pieces together, it represents many, many, of the difficulties our nation faces due to a broken drug and healthcare system. Since the FDA announced approval, three members of the FDA's scientific advisor group have sent letters of resignation. Jeremy, I wanna be clear. 
I'm not a neurology expert. I've not seen the data. And I'm not opining about what the scientific advisory group should have concluded. However, once they have reviewed the information, once these scientists have recommended against approval, I believe that the FDA should either have concurred with the recommendation or explained what it was that led them to reverse a decision from some of the nation's leading experts in the field who do have the ability to understand the research, who have seen the data, and who have massive experience with Alzheimer's disease. This was a bad decision made in the context of a bad federal policy over drug pricing, facilitated by a broken political lobbying and campaign contribution system in a world of a failed fee-for-service method of healthcare reimbursement. Outside of that, everything worked perfectly. Jeremy, as a physician, I'm bothered by the oversized impact lobbying and campaign contributions have relative to healthcare policy. But as a historian and political expert, I suspect you can identify some good reasons for our current approach. Do other nations have this type of system? Can you provide any historical context? How would you change the current approach to maximize quality and affordability of healthcare for patients? Robbie, I don't know if there is a good reason for our current approach. I mean, I understand the point of lobbying and how it works, but it leaves a bad taste in my mouth as it often feels like corporate interests win above the common good. When you look at the lobbying spend from healthcare and pharma in the US, it dwarfs every other industry. Look at the Affordable Care Act, for example. It really could have been something special. Instead, the influence from lobbying and special interest groups worked. Sure, the ACA improved some things, but it also made others worse. Overall, though, it just expanded access to a completely broken system without really fixing anything. Hundreds of millions of dollars were spent lobbying to help influence and shape the ACA. I'm not super familiar with lobbying and campaign contributions around the world, but I can say that according to an article from Politico, the one big difference between the US and the EU is that the majority of the policymakers in the EU institutions are not elected. And since they do not need to stand for elections, they do not need to find the significant amounts of cash to support campaigns. Instead of spending innumerable hours fundraising, they balance competing interests in an effort to produce policies that are seen as legitimate, though produced by less than democratic structures. In the US, 89% of corporations and 53% of trade associations succeed in their lobbying efforts. While the majority of those fighting for the broader good, 60% uh, of citizen groups and 63% of foundations fail in their lobbying goals. In the EU, uh, this is much more of an even split. Uh, this is because legislators in the US are beholden to the wealthy interests that will underwrite their next re-election bid. While in the EU, we see that industry often wins as well but citizen groups and foundations fighting for the public good win at equal rates. You know, policymakers in the EU do not need industry's euros. 
So we do not see the same level of pandering to their interests. I think that fixing this and making things better and more affordable for patients is going to be difficult to fix. The first steps I would take are one, getting rid of super PACs and two, term limits for Congress. When you have people who are supposed to represent and take care of the public that are always campaigning and always after corporate money for their campaign financing, corporate interests are almost always gonna come first ahead of the public. I believe this is especially true in deep red or blue parts of the country where someone might hold the same seat for decades without any real competition. I can only imagine the kind of disconnect to the reality of what their constituents actually want and what is in their best interest that comes from being an elected official in Washington for decades, relying heavily on corporate money and always having them try to influence you. Like I said, we need to end super PACs and have term limits for Congress as a first step. The American government should be fighting for the best interests of the people, not the corporations. Jeremy, let me ask you a follow-up. When it comes to something like this new drug for Alzheimer's, you have families desperate to try anything, pushing for FDA approval, and other people worried about the exorbitant cost and lack of efficacy pushing in the opposite direction. How should government balance the responsibility of protecting the individual versus protecting the nation as a whole? Robbie, this is a very difficult question for me to answer. On one hand, the government should protect individuals from being prescribed potentially dangerous, deadly, or unproven drugs. That being said, I know many people who have had a family member with cancer and they have tried anything from homeopathic medicine to Eastern medicine to straight up snake oil they found on the far reaches of the internet's kookiest scams and quacks. One's traditional routes of treatment proved to be uh, not as effective as hoped. Robbie, maybe there is a point where a doctor can say there's a point of no return that has been reached with something like cancer or Alzheimer's where they say to the patient, look, this is an option. It could potentially be dangerous. The evidence shows it may very well not be effective, but at this point, it might be your best bet. Have that kind of a disclaimer on it. I feel patients and their families should have that right, but also it should be very, very carefully explained by the doctor, the risk versus the reward and the likelihood of success. I understand that this could be seen as taking advantage of a desperate person, and it's easy to dismiss these kind of drugs until it's your family and you are the one desperate for any glimmer of hope. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the hosts, please visit a contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth and have a great day.